distortions of reality, contemptuous, an impeccable image, no conscience of any kind, magical thinking. Shame. Welcome to the unreal world of narcissists and sociopaths. I'm Jari Chevalier. For this program, I undertook an eight-month intensive study of the cheery topics of sociopathy, psychopathy, addiction, and narcissism. In the course of my research, I found that the complex of traits found among pathological narcissists, sociopaths, and psychopaths look very similar, and that addiction to either substances or compulsive behaviors is much higher in these populations than in the general population. Addiction is woven tightly into the fabric of these lives. And the societal system in which we find these and other personality disorders is both a causative factor in their formation and the theater in which their destructive dramas are enacted. Most of them do not act with physical violence. Instead, they wound and wreak havoc through betrayal. Sociopaths and psychopaths are profoundly disabled emotionally. And because of this, their severe emotional disabilities can go undetected for a very long time. Here is Dr. Martha Stout, author of The Sociopath Next Door, speaking about sociopathy and psychopathy, terms that to her are synonymous. For all of us, even mental health professionals, it's very difficult to see because one of the fundamental parts of it is deception, is looking normal. And a bright sociopath, even even one of just normal intelligence, can go far in appearing normal. So how is this different from narcissism expert Dr. Linda Martinez-Louis' description of a pathological narcissist? The body of the narcissist, male or female, appears to be perfect. However, their bodies are hard and rigid. They've stopped feeling. They're not really living in their bodies as spontaneous transparent, real human beings. They may be shining as beautiful and handsome, but inside they are blank and emotionless. Experiencing few and shallow emotions most of the time, yet suddenly and without sufficient cause, rage can arise with great force from deep in the unconscious, like a cork flying from a bottle of ferment. I'm on the receiving end of spouses, co-workers, children of narcissists who have witnessed this level of rage as a result of some very small slight. I asked Dr. Martinez Louis, author of Freeing Yourself from the Narcissist in Your Life, to give us a rundown of narcissistic traits. No respect for personal boundaries, a complete lack of empathy, They believe that they are not only superior, but they are a good person. There is a self-adoration where they expect everybody around them to bow to their outrageous demands. Excessive self-indulgence. They are chronic liars, and they have a lack of conscience. They exploit everyone, even family members. They are relentlessly vengeful and take revenge. They are constantly blaming others for what is deep inside them that they cannot locate because it's unconscious. The content of these projections 
are a combination of the unconscious, threatening, aggressive childhood experiences that were deeply traumatic and are at the core of the narcissist's personality. The narcissist blurs over into sociopathy. It's a spectrum. It's a continuum, isn't it? Yes, it is. So they may not do the physical harm, become physically violent, but because of their hubris, and their destructive nature, they will literally devastate other people's lives. Dr. Nina Brown, author of many books on the nature of narcissistic personality disorder, including The Destructive Narcissistic Pattern, says this. Most of these things are not that overt and flagrant. You only see them over time and after some interactions with them. And then there are times when you just might not see it at all until somebody points it out to you. So let's dig in and get a better understanding of narcissists whose defining deficit is that they cannot empathize, cannot reach out emotionally to someone else, and imagine what they are going through. What's it like to be a narcissist? Here's Dr. Sandy Hotchkiss, author of Why Is It Always About You? The narcissist lives on the inside in a dog-eat-dog world. So they seek to destroy in order not to be destroyed. It's, it's either eat or be eaten. So there's no such thing as peaceful coexistence or no such thing as appreciation for others' gifts. Another person's gifts are experienced. They feel like they annihilate the narcissist. If this person can't experience him or herself as all-powerful, all-wonderful, without serious rivals, it's dangerous. So he or she attacks whatever is good in others as a means of denying or destroying that which d diminishes him or her. This is like the malevolent underbelly of envy, which is a really pernicious process. And here is Dr. Martha Stout speaking about what it's like to be a sociopath. Sociopaths lack both empathy and conscience. Without empathy or conscience... It's the desire to control and to win life as a chess game. And all of life comes down to that for, for the sociopath. And the intelligent sociopath, the professional sociopath, may be extremely good at that. And winning over other people usually involves making them jump. And if uh, somebody is not in a position to cause a war or, or do something on a grander scale, then where they are in their lives, in their, in their society, will be where they try to make people jump. Unfortunately, there's a lot of child abuse that has that quality to it. Narcissists and sociopaths are not psychologically prepared to provide the emotional nurturance needed by those they bring into the world. Some will become borderline personalities, others addicts or codependents of addicts, others will have eating disorders, sleep disorders, autoimmune diseases, dissociative disorders. There's a long list of serious disturbances that result from emotional injury, neglect, distorted reality, and abuse. Identity issues, sexual dysfunction, intimacy problems, and all manner of anxieties, phobias, and insecurities. What specifically instigates narcissistic personality? Here's what licensed clinical social worker Lisa Charlebois told me. It's basically created from child-rearing 
practices that rely upon shame. Dr. Sandy Hotchkiss elaborates on how the narcissistic personality passes on its poison. Narcissistic parenting, like all narcissistic relationships, is just infused with unreality and projection, and children being used as extension of the parent or parents and whatever their psychological needs might be. The children are seldom if ever recognized realistically or as separate people, and this is what's so destructive. The narcissistic parent sees only what he or she wants to see in the child, good or bad, and ignores the rest. This is damaging because so many real aspects of the child go unrecognized. Even the child who is the object of the good projection suffers from not being seen as a whole and complete person. And what does the narcissist get out of this? The narcissist gets what he seeks to get out of anything, which is a defense of the inflated, omnipotent self. Children and their vulnerability are the perfect targets for this sort of emotional abuse, and it can go on a lifetime. Dr. Linda Martinez-Louis also speaks of what it's like growing up in a household with either or both parents as narcissists. Most children of narcissists suffer horribly on every level, psychologically, emotionally, even physically through health problems. So being the child of a narcissist means that you are unloved and you are basically neglected. You are treated with constant criticism and disdain, lack of respect, and often humiliated by your narcissistic parent. Their parents, again, are constantly projecting their negative, aggressive feelings onto their children. So the children of narcissists are like prisoners in their own homes. They are often unprotected and left to fend for themselves. So for the child of a narcissist, life is very bleak. To be a child of a narcissist, you are either being pumped up or deflated scapegoated as a ne'er-do-well, or glorified as a golden child. If you are chosen by the parent or parents to be the special one in the family, you are treated with great deference. There is a powerful idealization that goes on in this child, and in many cases, this child is chosen because he or she has special talents, they have intellectual brilliance, physically attractive, athletic prowess are a combination of these things. So the chosen one or the golden child will fulfill the yearnings and the dreams of the parents to make up for their feelings of inadequacy. And as a result, the parents put no limits on these children. They can do no wrong, and they grow up believing that they are superior to others. Parents do not teach these children to be sensitive to others or to be empathic. Licensed clinical social worker Lisa Charlebois has this to say about narcissistic families. In all cases, children from narcissistic families grow up with a chronic sense of loneliness and shame about their humanity, so they just do a lot of suppressing. So if people don't become a narcissist, they're very likely to become addicted. Then whether it's perfectionism or workaholism or... um sex addictions, drugs, alcohol, eating disorders, codependency, you know, when people get addicted to trying to change or control other people's behaviors, addictions can be just far and wide. And the other major coping form that we see a lot of is just this passivity. So many women come into counseling and they they get really irritated because they're married to men who are just very 
passive and they just get enraged, like he won't take a stand to protect me from his mother. And they're very, very frustrated. And as a clinician, what you find as you get to hear this guy's background is he's never allowed to have a sense of self, um, never allowed to set any boundaries within his family. And so his sense of self gets kind of crushed. No one comes out surviving a narcissistic home without some damage. It's a pretty injurious thing. And here's Dr. Sandy Hotchkiss. In families where narcissism is rampant, it's common for people to have huge fights, which then just kind of evaporate into thin air after everyone's vomited out all of their anger and hatred. It's very, very unreal. One minute of vicious fight, and soon after, no sense that anything at all has happened. This is the narcissist's way of managing shame. And unfortunately, narcissists are ashamed a lot of the time because they're ashamed of the basic facts of being mortal, fallible, and vulnerable about being human. Another narcissistic defense, projection, will have the narcissist calling you the person who is out of touch with reality and blaming you for the conflict. Narcissism is actually a normal, healthy stage of development in early childhood. It's because the child is not handled well at that time that he or she is narcissistically disabled, giving rise to narcissistic pathology. Dr. Scott Baum, licensed clinical psychologist in private practice in Manhattan and a leader of the New York Society for Bioenergetic Analysis, has this to say about how normal narcissism in early childhood becomes deformed and turns up as pathological narcissism later on. Narcissism, regardless of the connotations that the word has, is a normal developmental process. It has to do with a person's development of positive self-regard or self-esteem and then the regulation of that self-esteem so that when a person encounters feedback that they have done something harmful or destructive or painful or hurtful, they are capable of putting that in an appropriate context in terms of who they are as people and what they actually did and what the hurt or harm actually was, and that process of regulating one's positive self-regard so that it remains reality-based and flexible and appropriate is what narcissism is, and we all need that. You're enjoying a special production of Living Hero, independent media in the public interest. We need the financial support of our listeners. Your contribution to Living Hero enables us to bring you this series of programs. Make your tax-deductible contribution now by clicking on Support Our Programs at livinghero.com. Thank you so much. So what we're talking about then are deformations or disorders of narcissistic functioning, circumstances in which the developing child is made to feel as if she or he does not have any intrinsic value as a person. Now, loving a person does not transmit the sense that they have value. Loving is one kind of feeling, and certainly it can enable a feeling of, oh, I'm loved and therefore I'm valuable, but it's not intrinsic to it. And actually, the feelings that relate to 
a feeling of value have to do with respect and admiration and appreciation. And those are distinct feelings from loving. Each of these emotional states, in my view anyway, has its own particular wavelength or significance. And you can't simply replace one with another any more than you can cure scurvy by giving a person a lot of vitamin D or having them lay out in the sun. So in narcissistic development, respect and appreciation and admiration are essential constituents of evoking and creating in a person the structures by which they will feel valued and then feel valuable and be able to value others and be able to absorb an appropriate criticism or attack. Gabor Mate, M.D., author of In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts, Close Encounters with Addiction, reports that every single one of the addicts he has treated in Vancouver has been abused in childhood. He also told me just how intractable addiction is. Addiction is a coping strategy that abused and devastated people rely on to get through another day. Some of the behaviors of addicted people so closely match the descriptive terms I found attributed to narcissists that I asked Dr. Maté why I didn't see terms like arrested development or narcissism in his writings about addicts and just what his thoughts on narcissism are. There's a certain stage of development when everybody's a narcissist, and that's about a year and a half, two years. At that stage, you believe that the whole world revolves around you. What else could a kid believe? He as much as expresses a bit of hunger, and the mother comes running with food. And it has to be that way. That's a healthy stage of development. So there's a certain point where we think we're the center of the universe, which is the narcissist. I don't talk about narcissists too much because all these terms become pejoratives in our culture. When you talk about somebody who's a narcissist, it's a put-down. But actually what's really going on is a narcissist is somebody whose needs were not met in that narcissistic stage of development, so they get stuck in that stage. So any stage of development where your needs are not met, you're stuck in it. So why put people down as narcissists? In other words, I just rather look at what happened to them and see where they're stuck rather than label them with, with a, a phrase that has taken a pejorative connotation. There's a lot of people out there, of course, who in that, by strict definition, are narcissists. I have to say I myself have been quite a narcissist in my life. But it doesn't describe who they are. It just says something about how they've learned to cope with life. So when you do talk about brain development and people being stuck and not having moved through stages of development, it's really saying the same thing, but not using the label. That's absolutely correct. And now we go back to Dr. Scott Baum speaking about the formation of narcissistic personality and its compensatory false self. When a child is attacked ferociously by parents, who are really attacking their own parents or the authorities in their lives, and they're saying that the child is bad and acting badly, in extreme situations, they destroy the capacity for self-esteem. The result is not only, gee, that person has low self-esteem, we're now talking about people who have no self-esteem, and in that context, that's an unlivable situation. It is not possible to, to continue to live without some self-supporting positive regard. And where none can be generated authentically, 
a false self is created, a self that looks as if this is a good, caring, loving, respectful, attentive person who can now try to feel good about herself or himself based on that created persona. But that's not an actual organic reality. And so the true self, the person who might be positively regarded and allowed to grow and develop, remains in a very truncated state. However, people often idealize the true self. Again, going back to Rech's idea and Lowen's idea that there's some intrinsic good person inside just waiting to come out. And my work, my own personal work and my work with people as a therapist and the work of others who have really struggled with these issues and written about them, says that's not necessarily the case. So without imagining that life on Earth would be perfect for everyone if only young children were treated more kindly, we must accept that emotionally unfulfilling early childhood experiences is where the lion's share of deep and lasting emotional damage is done. Excellence in parenting requires that parents be highly attuned to their children's reality, aiding in their individual and natural pace of human development. It requires that parents be patient, sensitive, and mature enough to find a Goldilocks balance, not too harsh and not too lax, with each of their children, modeling for them empathy and emotional balance. Dr. Sandy Hotchkiss. Fundamentally, the parents have to be able to pop that narcissistic bubble, and they need to be able to do it gently. That narcissistic bubble I'm talking about is a child of about two years old who is naturally omnipotent. They think they're the center of the universe. It's it's cute in a two-year-old. It's not so cute in a 12-year-old, you know. So the parents have to somehow socialize the child, and if they say no too harshly, if they socialize too harshly, or they don't socialize at all, they're going to be problems, and they're going to be of a narcissistic flavor. In narcissistic households, the tendency will be for some children to adopt a strategy of being overly compliant, while others will be overly defiant. If you see either in the extreme, passive and deferential, or defiant and rebellious, you may very well be looking at a narcissistic household. Everyone in the family may be walking on eggshells to keep the narcissist and his rage at bay. A child of a narcissist can take a very long time to straighten things out in his mind and get free of his narcissistic parent. The child of a narcissist may try for decades to please, uplift, or appease their parent, always going back to seek the love, hoping that this time they will be perceived as they really are and recognized, affirmed, and emotionally rewarded. Adult children of narcissists may either become narcissists themselves or find themselves repeatedly entangled with narcissists in their love lives or their work. They are likely to unconsciously recognize and respond to other narcissistic personalities in the world, to be allured and attracted to attaching themselves to them, perpetuating their quest to somehow get it right with their impossible parent or parents. I asked psychologist Nina Brown what a romantic relationship with a narcissist is like. What can be happening in the love relationship is that one partner is feeling 
very diminished, devalued, upset, and no matter how hard they try, things don't get better, and they don't understand what's going on. They don't understand what's wrong. They may take all of the blame. They may take some of the blame. But mostly they're just bewildered. What happened? What changed? It was so wonderful. But now it's horrible. It's gradual over time where before the person hung on your every word and listened to you intently and thought you were wonderful, all of a sudden it seems like nothing you do is right. They're constantly criticizing you. You don't measure up in some way, and even if they don't say anything, you realize that they really don't approve of you, and so it upsets you, And but you don't know what's going on. You don't know what happened. And social worker Lisa Charlebois says, It's a pretty lonely experience because the spouse often does not feel seen by the narcissist, and the spouse doesn't have very much room to share his or her feelings and perspectives because the narcissist is very fragile emotionally. If the spouse says, you know, I feel lonely, the narcissist, you know, they tend to bottom out pretty easily in shame. They either get, you know, really grandiose and deny it and go, well, that's just because you're so needy, or they tend to bottom out, great, I'm like the worst thing on the face of the planet. So really, the non-narcissistic spouse just gets left with a lot of kind of nothingness. Okay, I can't connect. I asked Dr. Sandy Hotchkiss, how are we to effectively prevent narcissists from ruining our lives or ruining the lives of other people? Well, by now, I hope you start to see why a narcissist can't be confronted. You can, you can try it, but you're going to get a negative response because he or she simply doesn't have the tools of a more psychologically mature or healthy person to manage or neutralize intolerable feeling states such as shame or deflation. So usually a confrontation involves shame or deflation, and this person just doesn't know how to deal with that effectively. If you try to reason with this person or assert yourself, the defenses just tighten and become more impenetrable. You are not going to change this person. That is reality number one. Most of the experts I consulted suggest that our very best strategy with regard to narcissists and sociopaths is to avoid them completely. You can start to heal when you get away. In speaking of clients who came into therapy with her to free themselves from the narcissists in their lives, Linda Martinez-Louis says that, As they separate psychologically from the narcissist, they begin to bloom on every level, creatively, taking initiative in their lives, experiencing spontaneity, humor, laughter, and being free and easy to be their true selves. And yet so many who are suffering will not be able to afford the time or the fees or even to find the support of a good therapist. How can legions of people avoid narcissists and sociopaths when they are everywhere in increasing numbers, and especially concentrated in positions of power where they can set you up, make you squirm, and wreck your life, even from afar. Here's Lisa Charlebois. Narcissists are fairly charismatic, and so they get to the top of companies, of course, tons of politicians, 
people get mesmerized by narcissists and they want to worship them, they want to follow them, they want to believe in them, believe in their perfection. Dr. Robert Hare, a Canadian researcher and one of the world's preeminent experts on psychopathy, has said that if he couldn't study psychopaths in prison populations, the very next place he'd go for his research is the Vancouver Stock Exchange. So just how prevalent are these disorders in our society? It seems to me we really don't know. Linda Martinez-Louis has looked into it. The American Psychiatric Association says about 1% of the general population are narcissists. And the researchers in the field, many of them, say that this is a significant underestimate. One recent study concludes that it occurs in 6% of Americans. The psychologists Gene Twenge and uh, Keith Campbell of the Narcissism Epidemic book did an extensive study, and they're talking about 10% of today's young people have clinical manifestations of narcissistic personality disorder. I believe that it is above 10%. I would say up to 15 and perhaps even higher in the general population. And I guess if we were to include the sociopaths and psychopaths too, it would be an even larger number. Yes, right. I also queried our sociopathy expert, Dr. Martha Stout. Would you talk about the research behind your statement in uh, The Sociopath Next Door that one in 25 people is likely to be a sociopath? Yes. Well, that 4% figure uh, came from a meta-analysis that I did of the available research, which at that time, and still, is, is not very plentiful. It's difficult to know how to mix the research studies and come up with anything that's meaningful because a lot of the research is done only on prison populations or only on men and and so forth. So I had to find a number of studies from a number of different countries and figure out how they were done, who their subjects were, and in the end came out with what I thought was a startling 4% from this meta-analysis. And I assumed, actually, when I published The Sociopath Next Door, that there was going to be an outcry from my fellow psychologists and from clinicians in general, saying that this was way too high a figure. In point of fact, every single person who's involved in mental health that I've heard comment on it has said that they feel that the figure is too low. We don't know how many narcissists and sociopaths are among us at this time, but we do know that their emotional vacuity and self-absorption can make them walking weapons. These personalities are among the most severely wounded and emotionally incapacitated people in the world, largely unconscious, unable to self-reflect or to appropriately make amends, or to adjust their attitudes or behaviors. Narcissists envy in others what they've lost or never had, and so innocence itself will come under attack. This is a special production of Living Hero, independent media in the public interest. I'm Jari Chevalier. Dr. Martha Stout tells us that when someone is a sociopath, he or she is... Not just unwilling, but unable to process emotion, receive and process it. And this is a profound difference. I mean, most of us, emotions take priority. Emotions can compromise our intellectual function. But for a sociopath, trying to figure out emotion is sort of like trying to figure out a calculus program. It has no particular 
valence or importance to the person, and it must be figured out logically. Very important to keep in mind because it seems that if there really is this complete incapacity, that it is the disability of the brain. It's a disability of the brain. It is perhaps unique in that it's a disability that, that seems to cause no particular pain to the person who has it tends to be quite invisible most of the time. And it isn't something that we can think of generally as a disability, and people will argue about what it is. Is it a moral difference and so forth? In my opinion, particularly since there is this apparent brain involvement, those of us who do not have this disability are going to have to find some humane way to deal with it, which is a difficult thing to say to someone who's just been targeted by a sociopath. But on a societal level, I think that remains true, that we're going to have to start not only dealing with this problem, but finding some way to deal with it that befits our emotional status. So what is the very best we can do as a people, as a society, to address the unfortunate limitations of narcissists and sociopaths while also limiting the harm they inflict? Let's keep in mind that to date, sociopathy and psychopathy have proven completely irreversible. There is no evidence that psychopaths can change through psychotherapy or behavioral management programs, though recent studies from Joseph P. Newman at the University of Wisconsin suggest that psychopaths suffer from brain deficits that may prove treatable with medicine. Most mental health professionals agree that while more mild forms of narcissism can benefit from therapy, most narcissists do not seek treatment, and pathological narcissists, like sociopaths, cannot and will not change. And so for now, there are many millions of people on the planet who fit these personality profiles, meaning there are many millions of people who not only do not care, but who cannot care. It is at the root of every human rot malady that far fewer people in the world are psychologically and spiritually mature enough to foster healthy development in their children than those who are having children. Nowadays, even when parents would do all the right things by their children, the structure of contemporary Western society, with early separation from parents who need to work, plays a powerful role in how much time parents have to give to their children, to support them emotionally, and to influence the messages those children receive from surrogate caretakers, the educational system, their peers, and mass media programming and advertising. If children don't get much time with their parents, then their concepts of who they are as members of their society and what life is all about may be determined by these forces even more than by their parents. Is it a wholesome set of messages they're getting? Are they being taught to trust in others and reality? Or are they being conned and confused and then asked to take this falsity and make-believe for reality? Jean Twenge and Keith Campbell, co-authors of The Narcissism Epidemic, tell us that in contemporary Western society, quote, there has been a giant transfer of time, attention, and resources from reality to fantasy, unquote. And with this significant transfer from reality to fantasy, the glorified outer trappings of materialism belie a crippling psychospiritual poverty, and so the glorification is something of a con job. 
contemporary post-industrial Western-style urban-centered society is itself antisocial and dehumanizing. It is narcissistic and sociopathic. Industrial and post-industrial society has ruptured families, forced dislocation of peoples, broken up communities, and fostered a culture of extreme individualism and ruthless competition, to name just a few of its aspects. The Globalization of Addiction, A Study in Poverty of the Spirit, is Dr. Bruce Alexander's important treatise on the destructive psychosocial conditions of our globalizing capitalist world and how these conditions have given rise to societies of rampant addiction and codependence. Studies indicate that broad social conditions are significant causative factors in the making of sociopaths and psychopaths, even more so than the influences of genetics, biology, or family experiences. For narcissists and for addicts, both adverse experiences in childhood and the societal structure in which they are raised contribute significantly to their disorders. In recent decades, we have come to understand that all the disorders we've been discussing, narcissism, sociopathy, addiction, and psychopathy, are very deep and intractable disabilities of character wherein the person is, in most cases, permanently out of touch with self, others, and reality. These are the very people pretending to be impeccable, acting like models whom we should look to for guidance, whom we should follow and support. Dr. Stout suggests that if we can come to grips with what her research indicates, it could bring radical new awareness to us all regarding the nature of human nature. Understanding this problem creates an entire paradigm shift in the way we view human nature. You know, particularly in the West, uh, we think of human beings as a group of, of beings that all possess the ability to love somewhere inside and who therefore all possess the capacity for conscience at some level. Uh, and then another part of that is the, the feeling that under the wrong circumstances, we could all be a uh, Nazi prison guard, for example. And to understand that this may not be true, that in fact it's the case that 4% of us can't love and don't have conscience, and therefore quite possibly true that a lot of the things we attribute to normal human nature, uh, some of the egregious things that we attribute to it, may not be right. It's hard to imagine how much of a change that would make societally, culturally, if people could really grasp that. The study of human nature, psychology, is a relatively new science, and there is a great deal to be researched and synthesized about how human character is formed. We are just beginning to recognize the malleability of human nature, the profound responsibility of parents and caregivers. At the same time, we see the equally shaping influence of societal values and societal systems on how human life unfolds and develops, which human capacities are fostered and which are hampered. We live in a world in which the vast majority of people have never been exposed to the information in this program and who remain captivated by the magnetic, seductive, charismatic, and authoritative personalities of narcissists and sociopaths. The majority of people are not only willing, but eager to do their bidding. Albert Einstein said, 
that the world is a dangerous place, not because of the people who are evil, but because of the people who don't do anything about it. Dr. Stanley Milgram initiated a long series of studies proving that about two-thirds of people in the general population will go right ahead and willfully harm others if they are instructed to do so by a perceived authority figure. These may very well be the passive ones described by Lisa Charlebois, the ones who, when faced with dictatorial parents, were too overwhelmed and cowed to ever stand up to the likes of them in their lives, in any situation, in society. Remember, narcissists and sociopaths live to dominate and thrill to win. They can excel marvelously anywhere ruthlessness is rewarding, in business, international banking, white-collar crime, politics, and military operations. Narcissists have a terror of being exposed and humiliated for what is repressed and unconscious in them. They do not admit error. There is a tremendous underlying anxiety and need to cover up who they are and the reality of what they actually do. But the legendary Dr. Philip Zimbardo reminds us... Center people who, for some reason we don't know, and this is what I'm studying now, are able to resist these powerful situational forces. They don't comply. They don't conform. They don't go along with the group. They're willing to challenge unjust authority. And those people I'm calling heroes. These are the ones with a powerful conscience and an intrinsic personal authority that guides them throughout their lives. So, wherever there is the potential of increasing the numbers, stature, and influence of these heroes, society can gain real leverage points for positive transformation. Even so, we all know that individual power and courage can only do so much. Uniting with others who care is the only way to address large-scale systemic and structural maladies of society. Singularly, such heroic people are easy to smear, silence, disappear, and otherwise render ineffectual in their efforts to expose and neutralize sociopathic systems, whether they be family systems, corporations, organized crime syndicates, corrupt government agencies, or international agreements. The system is where the power is. So the system is the educational system, the correctional system, the military system, the, um, you know, capitalism. The system is really the big picture in which situations are embedded. So we have tended to focus because it's easy to see. Here's a person, here's they're in this situation. But if you want to change bad situations, you have to understand what's keeping them going. And Dr. Zimbardo urges courageous people to collaborate, to act in groups. But what are to be the actions of these groups? Dr. Martha Stout posed the question, what is the most humane way to deal with those who cannot love or care or begin to understand the suffering of others without stooping to insensitive strategies ourselves? I quote Andrew Lobachevsky, author of Political Ponerology, which is a study of sociopathy in power, who said that an improved social system of the future should protect individuals and societies by preventing sociopaths, quote, from any social functions wherein the fate of other people would depend on their behavior, unquote. The traits, causative factors, and intense social dangers of both narcissism and sociopathy are becoming common knowledge, 
just as more prisons are being built and as white-collar criminal activity is before us in the news every day. And meanwhile, the American Psychological Association is proposing major changes to the personality disorders section of the next edition of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, the DSM. This is the text used by psychiatrists and psychologists to diagnose and report on people's dysfunctions. The proposal is to omit narcissism as a personality disorder. I talked with Dr. Chris Barry, a psychology professor at the University of Southern Mississippi, who specializes in narcissism and sociopathy in youth. He said, quote, we honor narcissism in our society, unquote. Narcissists are shallow and hollow. They're all about performance and looking good. He said, quote, they are not real, unquote. Psychological research is teaching us about human nature and society, and we confront again and again how early childhood trauma gives rise to large-scale social problems. Dr. Bob Stuckey, who works with psychopaths in the correctional system in Portland, Oregon, told me that psychopaths speak coldly and matter-of-factly about their severely abusive childhoods, scenes such as having their teeth punched out by a parent. Alice Miller, in her book For Your Own Good, speaks of the parents who lie and manipulate and confuse their children to dominate, as well as of the parents who strike their children. And Dr. Robert Hare, who wrote Without Conscience and who co-authored Snakes in Suits, recently revised his psychopathy checklist for more easily identifying the corporate psychopaths who lie and con and manipulate people. I want to leave you with this thought. Those who are not raised with respect, sensitivity, and genuine love are split away from their true selves and therefore split away from reality. Love is real. Real is love. The Unreal World of Narcissists and Sociopaths has been a special production of Living Hero. I'm Jari Chevalier. Special thanks for this program go to Charles de Montebello of CDM Studios, New York. You've just enjoyed independently produced media. To continue offering you these special programs requires your help. Your contribution is tax-deductible to the full extent of the law, Link directly to the secure server at our nonprofit fiscal sponsor, Fractured Atlas, by visiting livinghero.com and clicking on Support Our Programs. To discuss underwriting opportunities, email me, Jari Chevalier, host at livinghero.com. And thanks so much for listening.